Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Warning, the Josh Hammer Show is intended for a mature audience. Listener discretion is advised. A path forward for the new right. If you are a conservative, if you are a religious person, if you are a traditionalist, frankly, if you just love this country, fight back. And exposing the woke left. What is this identity politics drill? Why is the right playing into that? The only way out is through. This is the Josh Hammer Show. $40 million in legal fees. That was the number generated at the end of last week. That is the number that Donald Trump has spent just on legal fees in the first six months of the year 2023. That is more than the $36 million that Donald Trump's campaign has brought in since he announced that he was running for the presidency in 2024 in that mind-numbing speech at Mar-a-Lago in the middle of last November. You combine that with roughly $20 million in attack ads at his most formidable candidate, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. And you're getting at $60 million, not a penny of which is used to undermine the case against reelecting one of the worst presidents in American history, probably the worst president of my entire lifetime, Joe Biden. You then factor in that there has been a superseding indictment A third party has been named in the indictment, alleging that the former president directed the cameras at Mar-a-Lago, the footage to be deleted. Again, just allegations. Trump will have his day in court. We are now awaiting two likely further indictments, one from special counsel Jack Smith pertaining to January 6th and another in Fulton County, Georgia, pertaining to Trump's Infamous phone calls with Brad Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State. You then zoom out a little bit further, and you see that in all the polling we have with political independents, moderate suburban voters, crucial swing states, and there are vanishingly few at this point, but swing states like Wisconsin, Georgia, Arizona, Pennsylvania, states like that, you see Trump consistently underperforming in these states relative to his rivals, such as Ron DeSantis. And then you look at the real clear politics average of the national polls, and you see that Trump still has this massive lead, which we discussed on our last show. And you kind of have to just sit there and ask yourself, how did the Republican Party get to this point where there is such a victimhood martyrology? I don't even know if that's a word, but we're going to call it a word. This victimhood, martyrhood complex, where every new data point of troubling news about the former president leads to this massive rally around the flag effect. 
all of the baggage. It is, it is all out there. Allegedly showing top secret Iran war plans to a journalist at his golf club in Bedminster, New Jersey. I mean, I mean are you kidding me? Not normal behavior. But it's actually not just President Trump. This is kind of the focal point of the Republican Party's victimhood, martyrhood complex. But it is definitely more sweeping than that. Look at Carrie Lake, who lost the Arizona gubernatorial race last November. I was rooting really hard for Carrie Lake. I thought that she was an exceptional candidate on the campaign trail. I was really excited, actually. And based on the polling average, had reason to be cautiously optimistic that she would take over the governor's mansion there in Arizona. She lost, unfortunately. She would have been, I think, a very good governor at the time. I certainly thought so. But she lost. And unfortunately, in the aftermath of her loss... She has been fundraising. I I don't even know if she still is. But for months and months, she was fundraising on a Stop the Steal grift. Basically trying to bilk donors. Oftentimes, these 65 and up boomers who are living on fixed income, retirees, bilking them to contribute to this nonsensical lawsuit to sue the governor of Arizona who was actually elected, the Democrat, Hobbs, and to somehow install Carrie Lake into the governor's mansion. Folks, if you think that a judge in America is going to issue a writ of mandamus ordering a sitting governor to abandon her office months and months after an election to install someone in her place? I mean, what planet are you living on? There are plenty of other examples, too. Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania, who really should never have been the nominee there for governor for Republicans in Pennsylvania. I think there is a good argument to be made that Doug Mastriano being such a terrible candidate and he lost in an effective landslide to Josh Shapiro, the governor of Pennsylvania. I think, there was, I think there was a strong argument to be made that Doug Mastriano was such a poor candidate that he brought down not just himself, but also Dr. Oz in his own campaign against the human vegetable, John Fetterman. Now Doug Mastriano is making a lot of noise like he's going to run for office again in Pennsylvania. I mean, do we want to lose? Is that the goal of the Republican Party? Is that the goal of what it means to be on the right in America in the year 2023? Look, I understand that we are up against powerful forces. I understand full well that we are deplorables up against a uniparty, bipartisan, ruling class establishment that is in hoc to a liberal, universalist, globalist agenda that simply oftentimes does not share the values and concrete interests of the median American in the heartland. I agree strongly with all that. I have dedicated my career to pushing back on that ruling class. But in order to push back on that ruling class, people, 
You have to win. There is no dignity in nominating surefire loser candidates. And if you are looking around the country right now, and you think that Donald Trump is the Republican Party's best chance to win next fall, I simply ask you what planet you are living on. And that's not to say that the policy platform, the rhetoric, the substance, I, I, I'm not saying that that is not important. I, I'm the most substance-oriented person out there. I, I, I loathe many of these other candidates purely based on substance. The boomer cons such as Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Mike Pence, and so forth. I would never even look twice. Think about supporting some of these quintessential boomer cons on the substance. But at some point, I mean, seriously, at some point, the electability of the candidate matters. Do you want to be in power? Do you want to implement an agenda? Do you want to lift up a country? Do you want to pursue a vision and achieve substantive ends or not? Or are you content with losing and trying to grift and bilk your way into legal fees, stop the steal, install a new governor? I mean, when did the right become so in the rabbit hole of victimhood and martyrology? I don't know exactly when it happened, but I do know that it is terrible and it has to stop. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Josh Hammer Show. So on Monday, Hunter Biden's former business partner, Devin Archer, gave closed door testimony on Capitol Hill before the Republican led weaponization of the federal government committee. This is part of the ongoing investigations from the House Oversight Committee and the Weaponization Subcommittee into Joe Biden, Hunter Biden, Ukraine, Burisma. And all of these topics that we have been talking about for for a long time now. Devin Archer, apparently, again, behind closed doors, but apparently testified that Joe Biden knew damn well, knew damn well and was active in many of Hunter Biden's very shady overseas business dealings. This, notwithstanding the fact that Karine Jean-Pierre, the midwit press secretary at the White House, has been strenuously denying for months and months now that Joe Biden was not involved in his son's business dealings. He had no idea what was going on. 
The rhetoric is actually softly changed if you are paying close attention to these sort of things. They used to say that he had no idea whatsoever. Now they just say he was not active. So they've actually kind of changed the language slightly in lawyerly fashion. Unclear exactly why that is, but you can take a guess. This is all happening at the same time that Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House, has been openly flirting with the idea of leading House Republicans to file articles of impeachment against Joe Biden, effectively alleging that he engaged in a quid pro quo bribery scheme of sorts. But it's really not much of an allegation because Joe Biden has openly admitted to this, actually. If you go back six or seven years ago, we've all seen that viral video of Joe Biden, I think he was before the CFR, the Council on Foreign Relations, a total kind of neoliberal globalist foreign policy think tank of sorts. I think he was talking to the Council on Foreign Relations when he openly said, and you know, he kind of did the whole like slapstick, I'm, I'm Joe from Scranton kind of thing. He openly said, he was bragging, he was bragging about the fact that he withheld U.S. aid to Ukraine while he was Barack Obama's vice presidential point man on that very troubled country. He withheld aid there or held it up so that Ukraine could fire the prosecutor who was investigating Burisma. Yes, that Burisma. The Burisma that was paying, as we now know, Hunter Biden an astounding $83,000 per month. To do what exactly? Well, no one knows to this day. But presumably it was not for his expertise on Eastern European oil and natural gas assets. It's actually even worse than this. Chuck Grassley, the soon-to-be 90-year-old senator from Iowa, a Republican institutionalist, if there was any institutionalist out there, released a very lightly redacted FBI form FD-1023. Outlining from Mikola Zlochevsky, the Burisma founder, how there were $5 million in quid pro quo payments that seemed to have been made from Zlochevsky and Burisma and assorted dark money sources $5 million per Biden, one to the big guy, Joe, one to the prodigal son, Hunter. In exchange for a favor, favorable regulatory policy, getting the prosecutor fired, and so on and so on. Again, that is all kind of going down this week with Devin Archer's closed-door testimony and Kevin McCarthy gearing up to potentially, potentially lead House Republicans in filing articles of impeachment. Of course, last week, when Hunter Biden went to court, federal court in Delaware, to get his sweetheart plea bargain approved, that all fell apart. I didn't see that one coming. I'll be honest with you. That one all fell apart under basic scrutiny from the federal judge who should be commended for her analytical rigor in this regard when she asked fairly basic questions to the lawyers who agreed to this plea deal 
where Hunter pleads guilty to the tax charge. He gets the gun charge effectively wiped clean. Somewhat unusual there, at least. And she basically asked if this was it. I mean, if this plea deal would then get Hunter off the hook for everything else that House Republicans and or federal prosecutors might be investigating. And that very basic question was met with an uncertain response from the lawyers in the case. And the plea bargain deal is now off the rails. The lawyers have 30 days from that court hearing last week to clarify for the court what exactly they meant. All of this is relevant Not necessarily because right-wing media cares so, so much about what we often call the Biden crime family. I mean, sure, taking shots at Joan Hunter Biden is easy, but it's actually much, much more disturbing than that. It's disturbing from a U.S. national interest perspective for the very simple and straightforward reason that two of the countries that Hunter Biden's overseas dealings in which Devin Archer has apparently testified that Joe Biden knew full well what was going on, that two of the leading countries at the epicenter of this whole scandal are Ukraine and China. Well, those happen to be two fairly consequential countries for current United States foreign policy. Ukraine, if you've been living under a rock for the past year and a half, has been the recipient of, at this point, well over $100 billion in U.S. foreign aid with no end in sight. We have sent cluster munitions there. As we get ever closer to the brink of a nuclear conflagration with the world's largest nuclear arsenal, the Russian Federation. China, of course, is the United States' number one geopolitical rival. And they are... Getting closer and closer, it seems. Xi Jinping and the People's Liberation Army, they're getting closer and closer, it seems, to sailing across the Taiwan Strait and a formal invasion on Taiwan. I continue to think that happens within the next few years. Wouldn't you think that at a, at a time when Ukraine and China, in particular, of all the two countries in the world, implicate U.S. foreign policy interests this much, potentially implicate the United States getting dragged into war further in one arena and in the first place in the other arena? Shouldn't we know at a time like that what exactly the commander-in-chief has been up to in these places? What kind of dirt do they have on him? So we will see what Kevin McCarthy does. The investigations have to go far, Comer, Oversight Committee, all of that. But at some point, Congress's leading tool to check the executive branch is the impeachment remedy. Maybe don't do it quite yet. Maybe you could wait a few more weeks, months. But at some point, when the evidence becomes overwhelming and the public arena, per Alexander Hamilton, Federal 65, is the effective jury for filing articles of impeachment, at some point... There's absolutely nothing wrong with pursuing the impeachment remedy when it comes to President Joe Biden.
Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The Josh Hammer Show. Notwithstanding all that we said about Donald Trump in our opening segment, I am very happy that Donald Trump ran in 2016. I've said this repeatedly. He injected many ideas and no small amount of pure, unadulterated common sense into the conversation that had been so lacking from many of the perched, cloistered, ivory tower, journalist, think tank crowd. Perhaps in particular, above all, Trump ran as an American nationalist at a time when the Republican Party was still dominated by universalist, globalist, we might even say right liberal forces. He ran on themes of restoring supply chains, reshoring manufacturing, making stuff in America again. What a crazy idea. The idea that the world's wealthiest country should actually make some goods. That perhaps we shouldn't be so disproportionately reliant on our arch geopolitical foe, the People's Republic of China, for things such as pharmaceuticals, antibiotics, personal protective equipment, gloves, masks, things like that. Do y'all remember at the beginning of COVID when we had a mask shortage for a time in America? Because who was hogging up all the masks? Who do we outshore our masks to? Well, that would be China. Trump really did begin this conversation, and there has been a ton of intellectual ferment over the years since his first victory in 2016 on this front. We've had many of those leading thinkers on this very show. Orrin Cass of American Compass, Julius Krein of American Affairs Journal, people like that, institutions like that. The fundamental thing to recognize is that the age of globalization is over. That we have entered a new age of nationalism. For so long, the elites of both parties, the Democratic Party and certainly the Republican Party, were under the misbegotten belief that globalism open borders, free trade absolutism, and so forth, economic liberalism more broadly, would solve all of our woes. To an extent, this was part of the thinking from Richard Nixon's famous trip to visit Chairman Mao in Beijing in the early 1970s. It was partly this kind of utopian ideal. It was also partly, of course, a pure kind of realpolitik 
decision to try to lure China away from the Soviet sphere of influence at the height of the Cold War, but it was definitely part of that. It definitely was part of the United States' encouraging of the laissez-faire-oriented reforms of Deng Xiaoping when he led China after the death of Chairman Mao. It certainly also has been part of the argument for those who advocate for loosening restrictions on Cuba right in our own backyard when it comes to the embargo that has largely been in place since the revolution there over 60 years ago. It was loosened a bit during the Obama presidency and so forth, but the embargo has basically still been there, and those who advocate ending it basically argue what some argued when Nixon visited Chairman Mao, which is economic liberalism leads to political liberalism. Another way of thinking about this is the golden arches theory of conflict prevention, as some people call it, which is the basic idea. The golden arches there refers to McDonald's. It was no less a neoliberal shill than New York Times columnist Tom Friedman. I think he might have even coined the term. Could be wrong about that. But the golden arches theory of peace, conflict prevention, whatever you want to call it, according to Tom Friedman and other proponents, basically says that in all the countries where you have a McDonald's, you're going to have peace. Because McDonald's is a proxy for capitalism and economic liberalism, laissez-faire. And if you're a democratized country enough, if you're a capitalist country enough, if you're a quote-unquote free country enough where you have McDonald's and other kind of thriving American exports of capitalism, then you probably are a liberal country broadly construed, right liberal or left liberal, and you will not go to war with each other. very similar idea was this notion of the end of history brought to us by another midwit faux intellectual, Francis Fukuyama, who first published this thesis around the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. Basically arguing that the end of the Cold War was the end of history because it would just be a linear upward trajectory towards more democracy, more capitalism, more neoliberalism, more globalism, more free trade, blah, 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 blah. Well, how's that been working out? How has that been working out for American manufacturing? How has that been working out for French culture, Spanish culture, Italian culture, any country in Europe for that matter? that has listened to neoliberals like Angela Merkel and brought in millions of Syrian refugees in 2015 or the like. How's that been working out for the United States' southern border? How's that been working out for our arch-geopolitical foe, China? Well, it's been working out quite well for China, in fact. They're now flying hypersonic missiles around the world to test them in a handful of seconds And they're looking ever closer at a Taiwanese invasion. It's it's working out pretty well for them. The key insight, I think, to be a conservative in America, a counter-revolutionary, to use the Chris Rufo term, 
the label doesn't matter. To be on the right in America in the year 2023 is to prudently recognize that the globalization dogma of yesteryear is dead as a dodo bird. It is time to make nationalism great again. God forbid, not ethnically or racially tinged nationalism, I feel obliged to say, just good old-fashioned American nationalism. Right there in the Alexander Hamilton, Abraham Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt line of tradition. Not a particularly crazy thought when you think about it. But that is going to entail serious, serious changes to the way that many on the right, Republican officials, candidates, and so forth, approach economic policy. Consider folks like Vivek Ramaswamy, who I am not a fan of. Consider how Vivek is talking about how America needs more legal immigration and how Trump was wrong to spurn the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, floated trade agreement. Well, if there's one issue that tends to unify the Republican Party these days, it's that they want less immigration. Assimilation has not necessarily been going well. Anyone who has spent any time living in South Florida, Arizona, Texas, or so forth, could tell you that. Do you know that every single time that I have landed at Miami International Airport and I've had to call an Uber, I genuinely do not think, and I've done this a lot by now, I genuinely do not think I have ever had an Uber driver at Miami International Airport speak English. Crazy. Uh, This is one of America's leading metropolitan centers at this point. It's obviously exploded over the past few years. So if there's one thing that the right in America agrees upon, it's probably the idea that it is time to focus on assimilating all these immigrants that we have let in since the 1965 Immigration Nationality Act passed. You know, in the early 1920s, after the unprecedented immigration that had happened over the past 40 years through Ellis Island, through which my ancestors passed as Ashkenazi Jewish immigrants, it was actually the U.S. Congress that declared a moratorium on immigration by a voice vote in the U.S. House. They didn't even vote on it because it was just such common sense that after all these immigrants came, we should focus on assimilating before letting in a massive, another huge influx. But apparently Vivek Ramaswamy wants more immigrants. And I'm picking on Vivek here because it's illustrative of a certain type of Republican candidate who just simply doesn't get it when it comes to spouting all sorts of platitudes about more multilateralism, more trade, more immigration, blah, blah, blah. If you don't get that at this point, then what have you been doing the past few years? What were you doing in the early days of the COVID pandemic when we watched the Chinese eat up all of our masks and gloves? What are you possibly thinking when you look at Xi Jinping's possible invasion, I would say likely invasion at some point over the next few years, 
of Taiwan. As he eyes Taiwan Semiconductor, Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, TSMC, the world's most important chip maker in the world, what are you thinking when you look at that? And you think about how the heck the U.S. is going to have chips for everything from the iPhone to the F-35 plane and so forth. The time for nationalism is now. History did not end contra Francis Fukuyama. There is no Whig theory of history. There is no unilateral moral arc of the universe, to paraphrase Martin Luther King or Barack Obama. History is messy stuff. It ebbs and it flows. It goes up, it goes down. The fall of the Berlin Wall did not usher in a neoliberal utopia. And if you are still standing there on the American right, questioning whether we should recognize that fact, then you should probably just get out of this business and find a new line of work because you are just totally hopeless. Hammer Show. So that gets us to Ron DeSantis's Declaration of Economic Independence, which he unveiled on Monday at a New Hampshire manufacturing facility. It is a 10-point plan to declare and ultimately restore economic independence. Now, I'm very happy that the first of these 10 agenda items... The very first one is, quote, taking back control of our economy from China and restoring our economic sovereignty. I I am heartened about the fact that that is the very first one. And here are some of the bullet points that I see. Quote, DeSantis will end our abusive relationship with the Chinese Communist Party, reverse our ever-increasing trade deficits, ban imports of goods made from stolen intellectual property, DeSantis will demand that American companies act in accordance with American interests, which means preventing companies from sharing critical technologies with China. DeSantis will incentivize the repatriation of U.S. capital from China through strategic tax abatements and aligning market incentives with strategic goals to help secure our supply chains. So this is this is good stuff. I, I, many of us have been wondering the extent to which Ron DeSantis, who kind of came of political age as a Tea Party-era congressman, there's been a lot of chatter in some parts of the so-called new right as to just how much Ron DeSantis believes in some of these more nationalist, dare I say populist economic ideals about decoupling from China, restoring some of our supply chains, things like that. So this, this is a very good start. I think what I would like to see ultimately is probably even more on this particular front when it comes to Ron DeSantis. You know, Ron DeSantis' parents are, are from the Rust Belt. They're from Western Pennsylvania, if I'm not mistaken, maybe Eastern Ohio, right around there. Pittsburgh Steelers fans. Doesn't get much more kind of blue-collar sports fan than Pittsburgh Steelers fans, as anyone who has been to Pittsburgh can tell you. You know, why don't you tell that story, Governor DeSantis? Why don't you tell that story 
as to how perhaps your extended family in western Pennsylvania and Allegheny County and around there has perhaps suffered as a result of economic globalism, of denuding and stripping down some of these former one-time manufacturing towns, these Rust Belt towns. Why don't you talk a little bit more about that? And then just on the specifics here, good stuff when it comes to the talk of tax abatements. But let's put a little more meat on the bones here. One thing that I have talked about for years now is this notion of wielding political power to, on the one hand, reward friends and punish enemies, or on the other hand, bolster the forces of civilizational sanity and defeat the forces of civilizational arson. Well, one concrete way of putting that into practice is to use the tax code to actually do what perhaps many libertarians say we shouldn't do, which is pick winners and losers. I think back to Rick Santorum's income tax policy for manufacturing, which is an explicit industrial policy back in 2012. So I'm, I'm throwing a lot of ideas out here. Very happy to see where Ron DeSantis is going when it comes to this regain our economic independence from China plan. I look forward to some more meat on the bones over the next few months. But for now, this is a very good start. And I think many who had questions are starting to have those questions answered. It's ah! hammer time. Go! Police are about to enforce San Diego's new homeless camping ban. Nobody's quite sure what will happen next. Well, why was there a non-enforcement policy when it came to homeless encampments to begin with? You know, once upon a time, San Diego was actually a red-leading bastion there in Southern California, along with Orange County. In recent years, it's started to shift a little bit more towards the left. Los Angeles at this point has become nothing short of a large homeless encampment broader cesspool, as I saw with my own eyes when I was there for a wedding in late March. San Diego, tragically, has been trending that way for a while now. It was less in San Diego. It was during COVID, actually. It was summer of 2020, if I recall correctly. And good for them for starting to turn this around. But again, does the rule of law mean anything or does it not? I mean, why do you need the city council, which is what happened in San Diego, to take a vote just to enforce a pre-existing ban on homeless camping? Uh, this just totally does not make sense to me. Shirtless man pumping gas in Brooklyn, stabbed to death by offended Muslim stranger. Well, that's a heck of a headline. What is going on just when it comes to violent crime in New York City in general? I mean, it's not clear to me that there has been any city, perhaps with the exception other of Chicago, that has as greatly suffered in the post-George Floyd era when it comes to violent crime as New York City. I mean, I, I, I hate to poke fun at this because tragically an innocent man has, or we think an innocent man has lost his life. But I, I mean, seriously, quote, a shirtless man whose friend was dancing exuberantly as they pumped gas at a Brooklyn mobile station was stabbed to death by a stranger who said the men's antics were offensive to the killer's Muslim faith. I mean, I, I have more questions than I think we have answers when it comes to this particular story. 
was the killer actually Muslim? Was there like an Allahu Akbar thing shouted? Are we actually doing the whole, we don't know the true motive thing, if that was the case? I mean, I have no idea what the motivation was, obviously, but if we're going ahead and flag the fact for everyone that he was a Muslim, you have to think that had something to do with the fact here. Sad story, obviously. I mean, Eric Adams, who is the mayor of New York City, former cop himself, he ran in a vaguely pro-police platform, or at least a platform that would be slightly more pro-police than his predecessor, Bill de Blasio. Unfortunately for New Yorkers, not at all clear that that is actually happening. Speaking of New York City, this New York City Avenue is overrun by brazen brothels operating in broad daylight. The street happens to be in... Corona, Queens, Flushing Meadows, Corona Park. For any of you who have been to the U.S. Open, that is held right there. The New York Mets play baseball right there as well. So apparently right there in Corona, Queens, is, according to the New York Post, quote, the city's boldest open-air market for sex. Quote, one so popular with pervs that it's advertised on YouTube. Well, first of all, why are the big tech platforms, companies like YouTube, why are they abetting overtly illegal conduct? There was actually a similar story that emerged from the Wall Street Journal maybe a month or two ago about how Instagram has become a veritable hotbed of pedophilia, of connecting pedophiles to victims. Disgusting stuff. And, you know, these companies are already doing the government's bidding. We have seen this in the course of the Missouri versus Biden litigation. Just this last week, the Wall Street Journal had a report about how the Biden White House told Facebook to censor COVID-related content. So when you're already acting as a government-esque platform, shouldn't you be regulated as such? But again, just goes to this lawlessness and anarchy that has characterized New York City in the aftermath of George Floyd. 